You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. All right, what's going on, Downers? Before we get started in this episode, I got to tell you a couple things I'm thankful for. Number one, I am thankful for you guys listening to and supporting this show uh, since the very beginning. The show is getting bigger and bigger every week. Things are going super good. I've got a new studio that I'm in now. I'm going to start having more musical guests and do stuff like that in the studio. Uh, last week, I did the first ever band breakdown, and that episode got more downloads than many of the others recently. Uh, a big episode. That means you guys like that, which I'm very relieved to do and very happy happy to be able to help some bands out and get them exposure. Um, so this thing is coming together nicely, and I am really am thankful for t- to you guys. So if you want to go back and listen to that band breakdown episode, uh, it's the last one, the one right before this in my feed. Another thing that I'm thankful for is Jabberjaw Media, the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, which has a bunch of great shows like this one on there. It's a, a, a podcast network that I started uh, with a friend of mine named Mike. And uh, Mike is an artist manager, and he owns a record label also. His company is called Outer Loop. I'm thankful for Mike, and I think he's got some great stuff going on. So before we get in this episode, I just want to tell you about Outer Loop Records. They've got some really cool projects, that, uh, bands that, are, that I think you will like and that you should definitely take the time to check out. Uh, they have a band called Chasing Safety. And they have a band called Migosh. So those are just two that I'd like you to consider checking out, support this kind of music, uh, support my business partner, Mike, and his company, Outer Loop. And uh, thank you guys for listening to Jabberjaw Media Podcast and the Break It Down Podcast. So last thing you can do, go to my website, make sure you're subscribed, make sure you tell some people. And uh, I've got an Amazon link. If you're doing your Christmas shopping, go through my Amazon link and shop there, and it will help this show. All right, let's do the episode. Break it down, oh, break it down. 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 Yeah. All right, Downers, welcome to the podcast. My guest today is none other than Chris Crummett. Chris is a producer, engineer, mastering guy, mixing guy in Portland, Oregon. He's done a ton of records you know. Uh, Most recently, the biggest deal, Dance Gavin Dance, number 13 on the Billboard charts. He's done a ton of stuff for Rise Records. Uh, Same time zone as me, very nearby. I'm up in Seattle. He's down there in Portland. And uh, he's a producer guy. He's had a ton of success. Been doing stuff since about 2002. So we're going to talk today about his career, recording, that type of thing. Chris, thank you for joining us very much. Yeah, no problem. I'm stoked to be here, man. Um, we, uh, you know, you're somebody that a lot of Emory fans and people I know and the genre of music that I do is uh, are very is very in, are are very interested in. And uh, there's something about producers that just uh, it's always interesting to people talk about. It's like a fantasy career, I think. People think of producers yeah. as they have this fantasy career. It's probably one of the most things that you could, you know, kids probably aspire to be, and that they just don't understand yeah. any pathway of how you become that. And so, when there's somebody like you who makes it, makes a name for themselves, and they do one record and then the next, and they keep getting bigger and bigger, I think that's just such a weird fantasy. But from the inside of being a producer and an engineer, it is a it's a tough industry for sure. It's been really yeah. di- it's really yeah, difficult yeah. for a lot of people, and very 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 few people succeed in it so i'm glad to have you on to talk about that kind of stuff today cool yeah man so night before thanksgiving here um i'll tell you what i'm gonna we're gonna talk about a bunch of stuff but let me just unload where i'm at personally can i do that i'll set that way you get to know me a little bit and then you'll i think you'll trust me a little more and we'll have a better conversation since we don't know each other i found out yesterday that my dog has cancer and is gonna die i think that's a big deal I got a newborn screaming baby at home, another daughter, a three-year-old at home is difficult. I'm having 
12 people over tomorrow for Thanksgiving. And then just before I left to come here, my mother-in-law uh, called me and asked me, could I take her to the emergency room? Because she was having something wrong with her. So I feel pretty lucky oh, no. just to be here tonight. <laughs> but uh, she, yeah. I think she's okay. I dropped her off. And after this podcast, I'm going to go back and check on her, maybe pick her up from the ER. So that's my weekend. That's where I'm, yeah. that's where I'm coming at. Yeah, for, don't, for, don't maybe pick her up. You might want to for sure pick Well, her. I mean, she could take an Uber or something, yeah, right? Know. She could take, there's Ubers, cabs, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She'll be yeah, fine, that's right? True, that's true. <laughs> but how about you? Where, what, cool. are you? what are you looking at for the holiday and your work schedule and stuff like oh, that? Oh, man, I'm, a, I'm, in a, I'm in a similar boat, maybe slightly less um, depressing. <laughs> I, I don't have a dog at all. So, uh, but, but I do have a 10-month-old, and this is like mm. our first Thanksgiving. We're having a bunch of people over, too, and this is our first Thanksgiving with him and uh, – just trying to, man, our house is a mess because my studio was in there for a while. And it's like, I'm going through the realization that there's still half of it in there, trying to get it out and doing tons of work at the same time. Uh, and having a little boy is like crazy. I've, you know, I've not spent much time around kids and uh, it's amazing, but it takes up a lot of time. And there's all these things that you don't realize. That you, it's like, I'm just going to clean the house. It's like, no, nah, you're not just no, going to clean the house. That's you're right. going to clean the house with one hand and if you're lucky to bend over and not break your back while holding it. Yeah, know, I saw that that you had So this right. you just have this is your first kid and it's a, a ten month old. It boy. is, yeah, it is. Well, congratulations, Chris, on that. I'm I'm Thanks, new to man. I'm uh I'm a little bit older, but I'm new to kids. I'm 37 years old and I have a three and a half year old and a newborn. But how old are you? I'm 34. 34. So probably around the same age. I just turned 34 like two days ago. That's great. So. Uh, Crazy. That's a really good place to start. So let's talk about this. Let's go in this personal angle here for a little bit. What? Yeah. How does it work for you? How in the world? One of the things that I've had the most struggle with whenever I'm doing engineering, recording for other people or myself is the hours and the schedule you keep and how it relates to your family. I always have found that and I do less of it now, do more podcasting and stuff like that. But especially with engineering, when you have bands in town, you have people from out of town, they're staying, they're in hotels and they want to work every single hour of the day a lot of times how do you find that balance is that a difficult thing for you or not well you know it's something i kind of prepared for because i knew well uh, it definitely changes when you have a kid but before that i spent a lot of years being terrible at it Mm -hmm. um and just working all the time and and not spending enough time with my family and it it became pretty obvious um over the years as it does for probably any engineer Mm -hmm. you know it's like you got to make a change or you're probably going to end up divorced or something <laughs> like, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's tough, but, uh, so like my, my, my planning, I think helped out a lot. I, about a year and a half ago, I hired an engine, like a full-time engineer. Uh-huh. Uh, so I do like eight to 10 hours with a band during the day. And then, um, my engineer work, he'll either come in early and work before if I'm working later or right. he'll, uh, work later. And so we can do super long days and all the stuff that like needs me here and needs to be worked out. Uh, I'm here for, and then, you know, when you're doubling rhythm guitars in the chorus, you're doing that with my engineer, mm-hmm. um, you know, a- after I leave. So we're super productive and, um, it, it, it helps a lot. I mean, I'm still gone a lot. Uh, but what I'm kind of hour do you do hours wise? What you say you really do eight or 10 hours, five days a week when you have a band in, in the middle of a project. Yeah. What hours do yeah, you do? Yeah, I mean, more, eight, more eights than tens. Uh, I'm usually like uh, 10 a.m. to 6. That's good. 10 a.m. to 8. And so, less. Uh, it works pretty well. And the studio is also, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, no, but the studio is also on my property. Uh, so it's like I have a, I bought a pretty large property here in Portland where I built a studio on the back end of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, it also makes it easier. There's no commute time. And like if I need to take a lunch or if I need to do something, I can just go into the house and, it, um, you know, makes makes life a little bit easier. Yeah. Well, you know, you've got two really good solutions there because of uh because of and and i think those things are recent for you that you've had the engineer and you have your new studio so based on your work your drive what you've put in now you've been able to make those two uh decisions and choices have been able to afford them you're fortunate enough to do that but i bet the last decade was not was not that way it was probably where you you know do you did did you have the problem where you would you'd sit there and work all night and not go home and stuff like that Oh yeah, man. Dude, because absolutely. how else can you do it? I, I mean, mean I did that for years. I even like, I mean, there was a point in my life where I just like, 
I was living with someone and I, I moved out and then I was just basically living it. I wasn't even living anywhere, but I was working so much that it didn't matter, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, but uh, that was a long time ago. But, uh, That's common Yeah, you for just work so much. You, you work so much that sometimes um, you're just there all the time. It's, yeah, it's a weird thing because engineers and audio people, they, they like it so much that, that they don't feel – it's not like working at a factory. I mean, it's very easy to get lost. Yeah. And the thing I always found is – I, my wife, I'd call her and say, okay, well, I'm going to edit some drum tracks and do this thing, and I'll be home in, and I would say amount of time, and it was always double yeah. the amount of time. So I tried to start factoring yeah. in that I would just double quote whatever estimated time I thought it would be, but you get lost in the stuff, yeah. and you really do enjoy it, especially the people that are good at it. I saw on Facebook, I think yeah. we have some mutual friends. Do you know uh, the, the engineer Dan Corniff? Do you know Dan? I do, yeah. I mixed a record that he produced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a super awesome guy. So I, I love Dan, and he did some stuff for us. And he was, I mean, he's crazy. Like, he lives in his studio all the time. And he was working at the time that, that I went and did some stuff with him in New Jersey. And he lived on, like, Long Island, like the other side of Manhattan. And he would leave the mm -hmm. studio every night at 11, 12, 1 in the morning, drive all the way home an hour and a half. And his uh, fiance was like a school teacher. And then he would have to get up the next day, and that was just it. But he has this... Like, he loved it. He would just sit there and do it forever. Yeah. And if you have an intern that's sitting there with you, it's just crazy that, uh, you know, and you hear stories of engineers, they just get put through the ringer, like interns and new engineers. It's like, you want to do this? This yeah. is what it is. And when the lead producer or engineer, yeah. somebody like Dan, is doing those hours, like, how are you, you know? that? Yeah, what, yeah no one else is going to get out of it, right? That's yeah. right. So nobody else but is that's the main a, guy. It's a test, it. though. I mean, that's a true test. Like, if you can't do those hours, if you can't, if you don't have that mental stability to just be there all the time and be super focused on stuff, then you're probably going to have a tough time, like, making it in general on your own. Yeah, it's some of the um, most brutal hours there can be because the focus is that band. They literally pay tens of thousands of dollars and they're out of town. And it's their, like these bands that you're recording a lot, I don't know if you get the sense, but this is their whole life has been built up to this moment of making oh, the yeah. first or second record. And I remember the first records yeah. we made, the, the intensity that I had toward the producer and the expectations that I had of him were unbelievable and probably unrealistic as far as yeah. my whole life is riding on these next three weeks or four weeks that we're going to be here. Yeah. But he was just a person doing the same job he does every single week. And that, that can be a real yeah. difficult thing. I, I find that it can be, or always has been. For it's, me. It, it's something that both sides have to keep in mind for sure. But it, it's really easy for producers. I think sometimes to forget that this is like, this is it. This is like the next two years for this band or forever, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it's always super important and I always try to keep that in mind because I know, you know, I know every single record, like those people, that's everything they've been working for for the prior year and everything they're going to mm -hmm. be doing for the next year or two is based around whatever we do in this like three weeks or two months. Um, so it's important, but bands always have, also have to remember that like we are doing this all the time. So it's almost better to like end two hours earlier and then be fresh tomorrow instead of me just being totally dead. And that was part of me hiring someone else, man. Is I just like, you know, I did like 12 years. Uh, I had, there was, man, there was like a five year span where I think I took seven days off or something crazy. You know, it was like, it, it was totally absurd, but I loved it. I, I never had a problem, but it did, it does get to the point where like, you either got to bring someone else in or you got to figure out how to space out your time and, and mm -hmm. be able to afford you know, bands have the same budgets, but spread out the time more because, you know, you don't want to die. But, uh, <laughs> you, you don't want to run. You don't want to run yourself into the ground. But you you also have to respect that bands have a lot to do and, and a lot to get done. Well, let me focus in, in a, a little bit time. more specifically. What are the things that you feel is vital that you do while you're there versus your engineer can do? Because there's the opposite side of the thing we've spent the last few minutes talking about, and that is. There's so many times and so many producers where you get to this level or this goofy thing, and I've encountered it before a few times, where the guy, the producer guy with the name that attracts you to the studio literally does almost nothing. Like he's just a guru that yeah. comes in and out, and you go, what the hell? The engineer does all the work here. So it doesn't sound like that's yeah, you, yeah. but how do you delineate, and what do you what do you think about the people like that? That'd be like Howard Benson, uh, David Bendis a little bit that way. I'm sure Rick Rubin, obviously, doesn't put his hands on many knobs. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're, if you're talking about Rick Rubin, uh, you know, I, I think that's A-OK, -okay because that's what he does, mm -hmm. and he has the budgets to hire 
engineers who are producers. You yeah, know, he's putting true. together an awesome team. But I'm not Rick Rubin. You know, I would love to be maybe someday, but probably not. I could barely grow a beard till I was 30. Um, but uh, yeah, I I I don't like that. I mean, I, or I, I just couldn't operate that way because I don't think the record would end up how I wanted it. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't. I don't feel like I could leave and come back and be like, oh yeah, I love all these takes. They're so awesome. It's like. No, like, let me do all the things that are up front, the things that are important. You know, we're going to rewrite all these riffs, and then I know that this is exactly what you're going to do. So tonight you have four hours after I'm gone to do this, 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 and this that we've already planned out. And I, I you know, and I already know. And part of, if that makes sense, I'm Yeah, it does, vague, but let's but, define you know, this, it's this, like and we, this. Like, what is the thing that you a, must be there for? So the things I must be there for, vocals, always. Mm-hmm. Unless it's like... Um, Sometimes I write harmonies in Melodyne and then people come back and sing them. If someone's doing that, my engineer can track that. But vocals for sure, uh, lead guitars, drums. Most of the time I'm around, uh, my engineer is really good with drums. Uh, and, and I always make sure of that. So as long as I know the parts and know exactly what's going to happen, um, that's fine. But uh, I, I'm around for the bulk of stuff. And so really all he does is like, doubling stuff backup guitars if the band wants to mess around with effects or feedback on something for four hours you know what i mean sometimes there's times where a dude just wants to sit in here yeah and run through like 12 different riffs on a part and mess around with it but mm-hmm. record it because he doesn't know if it'll ever be the same again and stuff like that that's cool and i come back in the morning i'm like ah, it's 90 percent cool and, and 10 you've been percent terrible out. and let's oh. fix those little parts and stuff it, it, it's 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 just about how you delegate, and and I'm trying to do that. I know that's still kind of vague. No, no, it's not. I I uh, was working on a record one time, and there was a a really high maintenance band member, and he all he ever wanted to talk about was effects and the possibilities that you could get out of. He was not a good. He was a guitar player. He was not a good guitar player, and he was a he was a Christian band that I was working at, uh, working on with Aaron Sprinkle in Seattle, and mm-hmm. the guy was uh. He was just a super, super conservative, really aggressive guy with very little amount of talent. I'm not gonna say who it is, who it is, <laughs> so I can talk bad about yeah, it. Yeah, that's fine. But he was, uh, yeah. he was so aggressive and unskilled, and he would just want to mess around forever. And he wanted, and I was like. I just wanted to go home, and we're just trying to track a guitar part. Yeah. And, and so the guy, like I said, he was he was a conservative Christian guy. I know this is just a funny story, but he, um, he would. Not he didn't drink, he wouldn't mess with anything like substance wise, yeah. but he took Adderall because he thought he was prescribed or something, and he would oh, get dark chocolate. No. <laughs> so he would take dark chocolate and Adderall, and I'll say, You know what? Let me get my computer set up for you, and you can sit here and you can work on this rotary yeah. guitar sound as long as you want to. I'm gonna go home, is what I wind, wind up yeah. doing with the guy. And I promise you, on at least two or three nights, I came back the next morning, he's sitting at the desk playing with the effects, sounds, and I, presets in, in my computer the next morning. For, uh, uh, and d- I let him do takes, show him how to do takes. No, nothing use, usable or useful at all. But that's how he spent yeah. I chose to spend his nights. So I just set him up and let him go. But that's, I mean, sometimes you have to do stuff like that, yeah. though. I mean, hopefully he realized that he didn't really like <laughs> what he did in the end, or maybe you guys had to tell him that. I, either way, um, Sometimes you've got that guy in the band and don't realize that, that you have to sleep. Um, but yeah, you, you do stuff like that and then either it works itself out or you can at least argue with them with a fresh brain. And, uh, what, do, how do you handle telling people bad news or, or, or you aren't good enough to, to play this part? I mean, you, do you get that where there's people that are in good bands that are good and they're not good enough to do what they need to do? How do you handle that? Um, I mean, it's, there's different kind of scenarios, you know, it, there's the, like, well, if the whole band is bad, that's its own that's thing. It, that's, yeah. I mean, what, and, and a lot of times I think it's not so much about a guy being bad. Uh, when, when, like kind of what you're saying, like when you've got two guitar players and one just like can't match the other guy's parts or like, you know, he's just not a recording type of guy. And that just happens. I mean, there's guys who like rip live, have awesome live presence. They sound great. Um, you know, they, they add a lot of other things to the band, but you know, they can't, they can't get those mutes right and stops. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, the, 
the they can't hear the pitch when they're bending just random stuff you know and and when things like that happen I, i'm just generally like hey you know uh your other guitar player could nail this in a heartbeat and let's just do that and move forward like no one no one's worried about it no one's gonna you know it's not going to be in the cover or the artwork that you know john played guitar instead of bill on the second chorus of the third song like mm-hmm. it, stuff like that doesn't matter even if it's all the guitars it's, there's generally a way to bring it up to people like you know it's just like what do you want you want a good record or do you want to be on the record and have it sound bad like i know this sounds kind of mean but no um, it, it does. i'm generally it's pretty frank with people and i don't really waste a lot of time with stuff like that because after like 14 years i can see people like that from a mile away mm-hmm. but i also try not to shut people down instantly like i never shut people down instantly it's like you want to try it uh try it out but i'm i'm gonna keep things rolling like i don't want to sit around here and, and mess around with stuff that's unnecessary absolutely so your career has been really interesting to me because uh like the specific timeline of it is interesting because you've been more and more successful during the time and, and built up and up and built your own studio and have hired an engineer, despite the fact that the budgets and everything else are going down, down, down. So, um, that should be flattering to say, but how, how is, how have you been able to do that when other people are getting out of the business? You've just, you're a younger guy overall well, in the industry. Yeah, you've been able to come I up think, this way. man, I think part of it is, uh, just, I think guys that are getting out of it were living in a world where their budget, their monthly, yearly budget was so much higher that they don't see how it works with a small budget. I mean, mm-hmm. when I when I made my first label records, I was charging like, you know, $1,000 for a month and I made it work. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, you know, it was like, it seems insane when I think about it, it now. But back then I was like, the first the first record I did that, before record came out on the label, I bought the cheapest laptop possible, and I was like, "I made it! Like this is insane." What you know? was that record? Um, and and I've never it's never been so high that the spending's been so high that I can't deal with budgets coming down. Honestly, uh-huh. um, I've just been kind of sitting in the same world of budgets for a long time, and but they used to be considered ungodly low, and now they're probably considered on somewhat high but not high so that's it's a good fine point we'll that's where it goes but i but part of me having a studio that i own and stuff is the whole point is like i'm trying to pay everything off low debt that's all that, that that's all there really is to it honestly so if you go all the Which, way back in your catalog i was looking at it today on wikipedia um, and I knew I was going to talk to you and stuff like that. And I knew you'd done some of the big records you'd done. And I did a deep dive to the beginning of your Wikipedia page. And I found some stuff that's just crazy closely connected to me that, that nobody else would know at all. But I'm telling you, my favorite band yeah. from the Northwest that one of the first bands Emory ever played with and saw and thought were like amazing is Crosstide. Yes. I mean, Hell yeah. Brett and those guys so were good. some of the first local shows we ever played as a band. And nobody knows who Crosstide is, but you have down here that you did their record in 2002. I remember that record. Yeah. I know every, I, that was like one of the bands that we played with when we were a local band in Seattle in 2001 and two. I remember when they yeah. made that. I never put two and two together of that. Um, and that's the first thing listed on, on, on your thing. I'm curious. Do you, do you, keep in touch with those guys have you heard from them since i haven't heard from them in a decade oh, probably yeah. oh yeah man ryan uh mm-hmm. ryan their guitar player and i basically share a birthday we're we're uh good friends for years and years um i keep in touch with their drummer and there's i mean i keep in touch with all of them man that's amazing they're, they're, they're portland, portland guys dudes, and they were friends the thing the thing is is that i i recorded four songs on that album and i recorded them because i was friends with them and I did it for free. <laughs> and I was just like, man, these guys are on a label and they're so good. Why wouldn't I record this? And I, at the time, I wasn't even charging for recording. I worked for, I did landscaping for the city of Hillsborough, Oregon at the time. That's crazy. Um, and that was actually the stuff that got hooked me up with Rise Records, mm-hmm. uh, got me hooked up with Rise Records. And uh, that was what kind of got the ball rolling. Was, I forgot that those, they were with Rise Records. Songs. Like my mind has separated it so much for what Rise is now to what I remember Rise being yeah, when it was Anatomy of huh? Ghost yeah. and and before they were even 
did anything. I remember anatomy, we knew an anatomy of a ghost back at that time and cross tied. Those were just yeah. like small bands around. And then that, I was like, yeah. oh, Rise, some little nothing uh, re- record label is what is, was my impression at the time. And then it's, it's crazy to see yeah. that. And then you did uh, the Inked in Blood. You remember that record? These yeah, are totally did, obscure references, like but that, some that's digital just, editing on it. My yeah. buddy Stefan actually recorded that album, but I, I know those dudes. Yeah. Awesome oh yeah, you have your credit as editing on that, but it's just really weird because yeah. you're a Portland guy, and we were a local band in Seattle in 2001 and two when we started, and so yeah. the connections here just I fear before the March of Flames was coming out at the same time, and I know that all that it was just yeah. such such a weird thing to look back at that. Um, because that is the actual origin of, of where I come from. So it's interesting that we don't know each other and haven't uh, haven't haven't talked. Before. I know. Well, we never we never played shows together, which was strange too. Because I was playing shows with Crosstide all the time, and like uh, not in the band, but the band I was in. And you know, we played like Gatsby's American Dream opened yeah. up for us one time, like the first time they played Portland. I exactly. Think, what was your acceptance? What? Like all those bands from that scene, and I just somehow we missed it. Yeah, it was a weird thing because we moved to Seattle to start Emory in 2001, not knowing anything. Okay. I mean, we were from South Carolina, had no idea what we were going into. We moved here because I thought Nirvana was great and the presence of the United States and grunge was cool. And yeah, we, we're yeah, from a totally. small town in South Carolina, yeah. so we got to go somewhere. And we got out here, and it was what was going on at that time uh, largely was like punk and ska. And I was like, well, that's not really what we're into, but <laughs> yeah. it was fast yeah. and peppy, and we started playing with these local bands and things like that. And you know, the screamy and heavy thing was just barely getting going. It wasn't even a thing. And then here we are. It was now. weird. Yeah, it was weird when it first happened. It really was weird. I mean, because really, it was punk, screamy. I mean, there was it really was screamo bands playing with ska bands. That's what was happening in Portland. We'd go play in little yeah. church basements and come down to Portland. People would come up and playing garages and stuff like that and it was really was screamy stuff happening with just ska or pop punk really weird stuff from my point of view there and then now it's so weird that uh i mean how many years that's 15 years ago almost now now that screamy stuff almost is just nostalgia old stuff now isn't that a weird thing yeah yeah, yeah. Do do you think yes. of uh, the the genre of screamy and heavy? This Rise Records, the Devil Wears Prada, the Dance Gavin Dance, the, the the this all that kind of stuff. Do you think of that as a old or outdated genre, or is it like where you're currently at as far as stuff you care about, like and listen to? Um, I I think. I mean, I actually honestly don't listen to that much screamy stuff mm-hmm. outside of what I work with. I never really have. Like, I I enjoy it, but I do so do stuff like that so much at work that that's that's enough for me. Um, but I do know what you mean. Like, it's weird that it's an old genre. I wouldn't call it outdated. Um, some of it is, um, but like you know, it's like dance, Gavin dance. Like, how can I call that outdated when I have like a, a top billboard record that's true uh, a month ago two months ago and and it's it's the bands that are evolving and there's a lot of like edm and stuff that's evolving into it so i wouldn't i that, some of that stuff is not is definitely not outdated tell but me more tell me more it's about not that. new either it? it's not fresh i mean it's not brand new it's it's uh it's weird to me i think what you're saying and it's weird to me too that that stuff is like that there are people who their entire lives of listening to music mm-hmm that's what they know and to me it's still kind of like a new thing even though it's old well tell me about what you just said about edm and, and being involved there tell me what you mean about that that sounds interesting oh well a lot of a lot of the screamo the stuff that was like screamo in the early 2000s um it just got way tighter in the late you know in the 2010s and mm-hmm. then around that same time uh all the stuff that had piano and like synths and stuff in it uh, that genre turned into straight like EDM verses oh. and metalcore choruses. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it, it really evolved. You trace that all the way back uh, to the key- top forty. You trace that back to the keyboard introduction into the screamo. Is that where? It, that's I, I hadn't thought I about it that so, way. Yeah. Because when you know, I think. I'm, Sorry, we, I, I, it, no, no, for ahead. everybody out there, there's it, when you hear podcasters like me interrupt people all the time, it's because there's a little bit of delay on Skype or Google or whatever yeah. you're on. So it sounds like often, and I feel embarrassed that like I'm interrupting the person. And I do 
interrupt people a lot is part of the way I am, but sometimes it's just a delay on the computer. So, um, apologize about that. But what I'm saying is I remember when keyboards were a newer thing. Emory was a, a early keyboard band and Under Oath was and stuff like that. And then it and it was weird because they weren't that integral in the musical sides of the band. Like you barely ever hear the keyboards in in some of those some of those bands. And they yeah. as tracks and as computers and technology became more and more uh usable those things started integrating the live shows more and more but at the time they were yeah. like almost a visual prop i can almost say that for emory it was almost a visual prop for us that we had three parts that had a keyboard thing so yeah we had the keyboard yeah. and then once you had it up there it's like wow that looks cool and that's like uh it was almost ironic like oh a keyboard in a yeah. heavy band and then it became yeah. to the new generation of bands it became well it's a heavy screamy band of course you need a keyboard which i always thought was kind of funny and then yeah. maybe you're right. I never traced that, but it, you trace that technology line all the way into modern EDM and that kind of thing being involved. Yeah, I think the mindset was like, well, we're, if we're going to have a keyboard player, or like, I think a lot of times it was like, well, we're going to add keyboard to our songs, and then later it turned into, hey, we should have a keyboard player. Mm -hmm. But you know, he used to play bass in my buddy's band sort of thing and he can just play the keyboard live during the backing track and then that turned into like some guys who were really good at electronic music being like well i'll be the keyboard player but you have to have like legit electronic parts in your songs mm -hmm. um that and there's a few producers i think that really uh really kind of i don't know if it was like something they required but they really implemented that in just about every record they did and um, I think what producers do you mean there also who's in your head when you well I mean that? I guess more in like what I'm thinking like in the scene in the scene stuff uh, like Joey Sturgis and Cameron Mizell did so much like of their own electronic stuff over other bands parts that it really like injected mm -hmm. that sound into that scene yeah <laughs> yeah it's almost when producers started putting their fingerprints on stuff almost all the way back to if you think about trombino having drum sequencing or something is what i was thinking of when you said that yeah 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 exactly and you know and you're and uh that uh that under oath record um was one of the first two where i felt like this band is like a raw screamy band but they have um uh you know they have like legit like electronic drums and um synth parts and stuff yeah absolutely um chris how many records do you do a year do you have a, a rule on that or a way you think about it like how much you can do in a year and how long does it take to do a record for you um most records it's a bit, 10 songs to 12 is about a month um that's kind of how i lay things out mm -hmm. um i try i try to do between like six and eight full lengths a year and I try to space out that the times in between with mixing projects or like uh, development projects that I think are cool. Um, and, and I try to take some time off too. Cause like you were saying, you know, we work so much. It's like, I try to save and then I'll take like three weeks off and just be with my family and hang out and whatnot. But uh, six to eight, that's my, that's what I try to do. It doesn't always work out that way, but that's great. And so how do you manage your business? Like, uh, you do a lot of, we've talked about Rise Records, but how do you decide what projects you take? Do you have a team, manager, people that do that kind of thing for you? And then ultimately the question I'm curious about is how do you s select or turn down work based on if you like it, if you like the music versus, you know, the money and the financial side of it? How do you weigh all that stuff? Well, that's a, uh, there's, yeah, there's definitely kind of a uh, sliding scale there um, and a way that I weigh it mentally, I guess. But uh, I like a lot of music. So as long as the band is good um, and they're writing cool songs, I'm, you know, I'm not like super specific on the type of genres I want to work with or stuff like that. But realistically, um, for one, to answer your first question, um, I have management, uh, self-titled management, a guy, Johnny Minardi, who kind of filters things out a little bit, but he sends me most stuff and I listen to it. And I, my first decision, usually like regardless of money, is either like, um, do I like this band or not? And if I don't like them, 
I don't think I've ever had a band where I didn't like them, but somehow they had some crazy budget. Like mm-hmm. I've, I've never been in that situation. So generally if I don't really dig it or I just don't see what, what is cool about it, um, I'll, I'll just pass on it. Uh, I, I get enough, luckily get enough offers that usually I can, um, just choose stuff I like. And then if it's something I like love and there's no money there, um, I mean, if there's really like no budget at all, most of the time I, I just have to pass, you know, it's like, I got, a, I got, um, bills to pay and stuff. I, I run a studio, like I can't do stuff for nothing, but I'll offer to like master their stuff or, you know, mixing a few songs or just keeping in touch. Like there's some bands I worked with where like I couldn't afford to work with them, but they were so cool. I knew something was going to happen with them. So I try, I like, Hey, I know this guy who charges like a, an eighth of what I charge, but he's really good. Go work with him. Keep in touch. Um, you know, talk, talk to these managers, talk to these labels and, um, let's talk in three years. Maybe we can do something awesome together. So you, you don't, you have no problem turning stuff like you, you, I mean, it's a very fortunate position, but you get to turn stuff down because you don't like it. Yeah, no, I I don't, I don't have a problem. I mean, I I think I don't ever want to work with bands that don't want to work with me. And Mm -hmm. I don't know why a band would want to work with me if, if I don't really dig what they do. Like I, I don't just want to take money and, and be sitting here and be like, yeah, that's, that's all right. Whatever, blah, blah, blah. Like that's not fun for me. And that's not. Well, but that's the that's doesn't the do any good for anyone. Well, but that's where most aspiring producers and engineers are, are perpetually stuck, though. That's where everybody well, is. Well, yeah, and and you know what? The other reason I turned stuff down is because I did everything under the freaking sun that came to me for like <laughs> ten years. You know, that's right. <laughs> I did it. I did. Yeah. I did my time, and I got super lucky with with a lot of projects. And um, I'm just lucky to be where I am. If I wasn't, I would work on anything. To, and so to, to you, make make, money, you do you know? think people? I love should my take job, but I'm just get. very fortunate to be in this position. So you do think people coming up should take what they can get? I mean, that's pay, that's part of paying your dues, then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I also think that it's a lot. I don't. I think if if you're taking whatever you can get and you're like upset about it, mm-hmm. or or being a downer about it, or not helping the band, um, but you're also not in a position to turn stuff down. Uh, that's also a bad place to be. And I don't feel like I was ever there. Like, you know, when I was doing stuff for years that wasn't my thing or was like, you know, some like, you know, 50 year old lawyer band doing covers, um, whatever. It was fun. (laughs) That stuff's fun for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And you, and you help a band and you do whatever you can to make them the best they are. But at this point in my life, like for now, when I'm living on the expectation of being able to make, six to eight really cool records a year that I think are really cool. Um, I just don't want to mix that with stuff that I'm not happy with. And that's just cause I'm fortunate enough to be there. Not because I think I'm better than it or anything. It's just, it's just better for everybody. Absolutely. The, uh, people that are listening on the podcast and not watching on the video will miss the background that you're sitting in front of right now, but it really is amazing. Especially if that's on your property is a spe- is a separate building you, you built. Yeah, it is. It's uh, yeah, it's a twelve hundred square foot building that we built um, a couple years ago. That's amazing. Twelve hundred square feet is huge. So you built the yeah, whole studio from it was, scratch. It was nuts. Uh, yeah. Foundation. Yeah, we dug the whole. You, you designed all like the, the back everything. of our property was raised up. Yeah, I found a I found a half acre in Portland, which was actually super lucky, like a bank owned property and. House was on the front. There was a lot of room in the back. So, and there was already like an apartment built here. So, there's an apartment attached to the studio, and it's all separate from the house. Um, and all works out really well. So, what what were the important things to you when put if you were putting together a studio from scratch and building the rooms and the walls and stuff like that? What were the important things to you? And I know I know twelve thousand square feet isn't reasonable for people uh, for everybody, but what were the things that were your priorities there? Because, I mean, you oh. don't have to have 12,000, 1,200, I'm sorry, I say 12,000, 1,200 yeah, square feet. that's a big difference. Huh? No, that's a big difference. But you don't even need 1,200 square feet these days to make records, right? Not no, even no, at all. Not at all. But, um, for, but, but I wanted this to be, like, my the, the final studio, mm-hmm. you know, unless I went to lighters or something. Like, this, this is it. So, and I track real drums. Like, I don't ever work with MIDI drums for, for stuff that's supposed to be real drums. Uh And I'm a drummer. So it was really important for me to have a drum room. It's not huge, but a room that has tall ceilings and is a nice size that, um, 
that drums really sound good in like mm-hmm. room mics are huge for me in my recording process. And I just, you know, I, I thought about it and I, um, have been in situations where I tracked in really small rooms and it was fine, but I figured I would just go the full mile and just make this work. Um, but the two, the two things, the two things that were, two things that were really all work was just uh tall buildings very comfortable control room uh a, a drum room that sounded really good and then building the rooms to dimensions that work really well acoustically instead mm-hmm. of trying to fix them after the fact it was yes. like really important to me to build rooms that are acoustically as close to anything you want and then you just fine tune it because man i've worked in rooms that just there's no saving and, and I just didn't, I wasn't going to spend money on something like that. So, but it's just two rooms. It's just a, a drum room and a control room. Um, and, and that's it. So I kept it pretty simple. So you're not doing a do you have a big console in there or you don't use a console? Nah, no, I use a lot of outboard gear mm-hmm. as you can see if you're, yeah, you got a lot of outboard the, gear, but usually you know, with that much outboard gear is sitting right behind a big console for the amount you have there. Yeah, no, I know. I, it's all just running live through pro tools. Um, I run live inserts and stuff. I have more stuff in front of me, but it's not a real console. It's not like an SSL. It's just more outboard gear. I mean, I'd love to have an SSL, but stuff like that is just the, it's the other reason that I can afford to do what I'm doing. Like, um, you know, until I'm made, you know, until I have some crazy budgets that just pay for a console like that and pay for my electrical bill for the next five years, I just can't really justify it. Yeah. It's cool though. Super yeah, absolutely. Do, but have you ever you've worked on consoles and SSLs and enjoyed that in the past? It's such a weird thing I've because never, there, there's I'm, such a I thing have. of the past. Like there's going to be the new generation. Nobody will even know how to use them, right? It seems like that way to me. Yeah, it's it's true, man. I mean, I've I have worked on SSLs, but I've never done like a real mix on an SSL. I've tracked on API boards um, and Neve boards and stuff, but I've never actually like no mix that anyone's ever heard me do was ever done on a console interesting i think it's an interesting thing because i used some a little bit coming up somehow was lucky enough to be around it enough and then i hadn't used one in years um at all and i I went in to do uh on the acceptance did a record recently i went in and engineered some on that and we they were they rent a studio that had a a big ssl console and i walked in and they were expect i said yeah i'll help i'll engineer whatever and I went in there to do it, and this British guy who owned the studio, which is intimidating when somebody's British anyway, and he started saying all this language <laughs> and started telling about the console and the converters, and I hadn't been around one in years, and I was like, yeah. felt like I was had no clue what he was talking about, and I was everything he was saying yeah. was going over my head. I was like, well, I'm screwed here. I, I'm not gonna know how to do this at all. And then I sat down and mm-hmm. I got on the thing, and it was mm-hmm. like. All of a sudden, by the time I sat down and started thinking about it, it just all came back, and I knew how to use this piece of gear, and I was so it, it was such a good feeling. But I was just thinking, what yeah. a, like it sucks that I even understand this thing because it's so useless, is what I was kept feeling like. It's not gonna matter, and it sucks that in buried yeah. in my head, I've spent tons of hours with machinery that like this that is. It's not useless and it's awesome, but it's completely impractical and very unlikely that I'll ever use it in the past. I was super bummed that that's even something that I yeah. spent a lot of time learning at some point. <laughs> I, I could I could understand that feeling for sure. Do you, I've never really thought that way. I'm always more just like when I sit down in front of a console, it's like uh, it just looks like Pro Tools in my head. I uh-huh. don't know. Um, it's like real life. 3D Pro Tools or something. So how um, do you feel about Pro Tools and its evolution? Is it a program that frustrates you or one that you just love? Because a lot of people love uh, hate I love it, it man. I, yeah, I, I love Pro Tools. It's it's come a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been a I've been an HD user since 2002. Um, HD is not... What was that 7.3 at that point? Honestly. What's that? Well, that was like 7.3 at that point, 2002, or before that, no. it was 6. No, man, it was a... It was a... It was... It was 6. Pro Tools six, HD yeah. was the introduction of 6, and I actually had Pro Tools before that. I started on 5.1, I believe. Wow. On like the yeah. Digi-001 yeah. rig. Yeah. That really ugly Digi-001 thing really funny I yeah that it was with five the, the, uh, replaceable face plates i had like a super cool like green one instead of the terrible aqua blue i felt pretty sweet um i recently switched over and started trying to use logic 
just as a, a mental exercise. You ever do that? You ever use logic? Nah. Oh yeah. When I'm trying to figure out why people can't bounce their demos down yeah. <laughs> or like uh, send me MIDI, like people send me MIDI and it comes in like 38 tracks instead of one. Uh, that, that's my limited use of logic. It's <laughs> problem solving. It's definitely frustrating as always. I've never, uh, people think, oh, well, you know, Pro Tools super well. Um, can you help me with this garage band thing? And I say, no, not at all. <laughs> You'd be better yeah, off to ask any they're, other they're person in the world. So, do you think this is this career you've got going? How do you how do you envision it going for like you just had a kid, you got a ten month old. Where would you like to see this go? Like you talk about, you said winning the lottery earlier, but career lottery, <laughs> what would it be for you going forward? Would you do well, less screamo? Would go you do down less to 7-Eleven? Go to, I'm going to go down to Seven Eleven buy that Powerball ticket as soon as we're <laughs> done here. But uh, got to keep it going. But aside from that. Um, yeah. Aside from that, man, um, you know, I just want to keep, I just want to keep doing what I'm doing and I'm just going to do my best to stay relevant. Like, I think it's really, really important to be up to date on what's cool in music, what's popular, what tools people are using. Um, you know, I love analog stuff, but I try really hard not to be super stodgy and like, Oh, you know, we can't use soft synths cause I have this analog synths. Like I try to keep an open mind uh, try to keep a positive outlook. And I would also, you know, I've, I've spent a long time kind of honing my engineering and mastering skills, mixing skills, things that like, if it comes a point where like I'm 50 and I'm so freaking out of touch with, I mean, I hope it doesn't, but if I'm so out of touch with music, I still have skill sets that are hopefully, um, uh, applicable and maybe they won't be. Maybe but what's but when you you're know, 50 year old landscaper again or something but <laughs> well you're 34 now what do you really picture 54 being you picture being the same place in the same studio and what other types of music and genres would you want to do uh, uh you know I, i'll work with any genres but i'm not trying to get out of the stuff I do necessarily. And I do all kinds of stuff. You know, I get thin old sometimes as like mm -hmm. a metalcore guy, but I do, I've done tons of weird indie experimental stuff and a, a lot of different prog stuff. But, uh, I just want to keep making music. I mean, I, I, I would love to keep making music with people in the same age group. I would look at it like that more than I would look at it as like genres. I want to make age music group. for pe that, that people from the age of like, 12, 13 to like 25, the music they love, that, that's the music that I think is successful and, and fun to work on because that's the time in your life when you really like love music and you're emotionally attached mm. to music. It's like, sure, I make records that like 40 year old guys like sometimes and, and I'm 34, but I, I don't feel, you know, I don't feel music the way I did when I was 15. And I think anybody would be, that's right not totally honest if they said they did. And so I want to make music for the age groups that like really love music. And that's, what's fun for me. Um, that's a really, it's not really about the genre or anything. I, I want to, I want to stay in that. That's a really interesting point. The way you say it that way, because what you're saying is that it's not silly to say that the people in that, in those impressionable, attack music it's probably has to do something with brain development honestly that you attach to music that way at that yeah. time of your life but you're saying that regardless of what the trends turn out to be you find that that will always be the place to be or the most exciting music to be a part of even though you don't even know what it'll sound like in 20 years because you don't we certainly yeah. don't but you still think you'd be making music that the ignorant 17 year olds are still into is what you hope to still be that's a really neat answer to that question yeah i mean yeah, I, I mean, I hope so. I'll, that, that's what keeps me feeling young, you know. Well, I was in uh, a record store. There's a tiny store. little part of me that still feels like an ignorant 17-year-old. Right. right, I was in a, a record store in college one time in uh, in close to the end of the grunge era or whatever it was like that. And it, I was finding, it was back when we were looking for used CDs and stuff like that. And I was trying to find just this, whatever music I was into, it was grungy stuff. And then I saw in the record yeah. store there was a guy there and he was, he was, old to me at the time he must have been 30 something and he was just wearing a scorpion yeah. shirt and he had long curly hair and he was looking through all looking for metal records like scorpions and stuff and i was like huh he was exactly my age at the time that that was this and he's that's yeah. not going to change for him ever and if i go back and look at it now yeah. i'm still into 
Pinkerton and in, in utero. I mean, that's still what I'm into. Yes, yeah, like that's still I'm, that's I'm still exactly where I'm at same. as a person, and it's never yeah. gonna change. And I think that's the best music. I think it's the greatest. Uh, and I think it's, you're probably right. The trick is, can an older person keep up and recognize what's gonna be great about the music coming out of that the, that age group? in a decade from now, will you still be able to maintain, like to understand what's good about it? That That's, that's I, the hard part. I think so, man. I think as, as long as I think, I think if you're not involved with current music constantly, it's super easy to let it slip away. Like I even feel sometimes like I'm like a year behind them. Like, man, how did mm-hmm. I let all that stuff slip away? I didn't even ever hear that, you know? And so I can't imagine someone who hasn't really, kept up with current music in four or five years. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just, like I said, it's super important to stay current and, um, you know, not get stuck in the past. Like I'll always have the records that I love the most and are closest to my heart, but there's also records coming out that I still think are awesome. And, and I think as long as I can continue to stay current, I'll be current in 20 years, you know, that um, is a really and, smart you know, way. To if, if, I'm, if I'm not, I'm not. And, and that's life. But, uh, I think just staying on top of it is is the most important. Well, but see, the other thing that strikes me about that, especially being a Portland person, which is the the central hub of hipness of the whole probably universe or galaxy, at least. Yeah. Um, the the opposite of that is the snobby thing where a hip person is so thumbs yeah. and nose at the younger music or the uh, you know what I mean? Like to take yeah. to embrace yeah. what's coming up as the next thing is the opposite of being snobby. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I lump people like that in with guys who, you know, the last great band was Led Zeppelin. Like, which, <laughs> you know, I, I love Led Zeppelin. That's, they're, they're great and stuff, but, like, you got to realize that that music moves on and, um, and, I, and it, that all hipsters are doing are just pretending that they're not that person um, when they really are. Let me ask well, you. Well, Let me ask you another question that leaves the music realm a little bit. But I think the same thing is true for simple embracement of technology and how people yes. are going to cope in the yeah. future generations. Because, like, uh, it's a principle of mine that when the new technology comes out, and I want to say to myself, or the new social platform, whatever it is, I want to say, ah, that's for the millennials. That's for the kids. That's for this. I'm not doing yeah. the Snapchats. I remember when Twitter came out, I thought ah, that's for girls or young kids yeah. or whatever. That's always wrong. And I think especially yeah. if technology keeps increasing and faster and faster, the first people to say, ah, I missed the, I'm stopping at this point, they're going to be outdated in a way that our grandparents and parents never were because it's going to be faster and faster than it ever yeah. was in the first place. So I think if you don't embrace yep. the coming technologies, maybe similarly to you were talking about music, you, ha- you risk being left in the dust more than any generation ever in history as far as, uh, you know, I don't know how to keep up oh, with so-and-so. Yeah. So I wonder, is that, yeah, man, you are you a tech person? You will be able to drive a car in 20 years if you don't keep up on technology. That's right. Like, it, it, it's really crazy. Um, but, and I think that it's, I think that relates to music. Oh, I mean, I think it's the exact same thing, but they're also connected. Like if you're not keeping up on technology, you're not really keeping up on how a lot of music's made. Um, you're, and, and another thing about, you know, I, I think I already kind of, what I already said kind of applies to the technology thing. But, but another thing is like, if I'm not keeping up with technology, I'm wasting people's time. Mm-hmm. Like if you're not, if you're not keeping up with how things how records are made and stuff like that. Um, there are certain old school things that I hang on to, but if I'm if I find that I'm like wasting people's time, like that's that's not as important as being inspired and making cool music. Just to like, you know, we're not back. You know, I'm not back in the back like cutting tape with a razor blade. Like that'd be insane. Like, mm-hmm. um, and, and and things like that are going to keep changing and and. And I know I need to stay current with that stuff and, and kind of shut down the part of me that, that has the nostalgia and know when to implement it and just keep rolling into the future with, uh, you know, keeping current on how things are done. That is almost poetic. I mean, I wasn't thinking about that at all, but, and I'm very guilty of not keeping up with new music. Technology is a little easier, but new music is very hard for me to keep up with. But just hearing you say that make, is is like a, based on my own principle is almost challenging to me. That it's no, there's no pride in uh, in being an old guy that doesn't keep up with anything. Really, I don't. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. weird. I never made, made yeah, that connection yeah. until you said that. That that is 
that is at the underlying of the hipster mentality sometime is to or, or the or at least yeah it's, uh, it's at least snobby and to do that we we all have those thoughts but when you ha- or and we all say yeah. i mean i'm not dude i say stuff all the time that i'm like oh i wish things were still like this but mm-hmm. You just have when you say stuff like that, you have to ask yourself, well, why is it not like that anymore? It's like, oh, yeah, you know, because uh, life is actually way better now, regardless of this tiny little aspect that, you you know, I miss I miss how 80s movies looked. I don't want movies to look like that, like, you know, terrible acting and like goofy claymation animation and stuff (laughs) like that's not how movies should look now. Like movies are freaking awesome now. I have a great time when I go to movies. But uh but I still love that old stuff, and I find myself, oh, man, I wish there was, you know, something like an old uh, freaking Goonies or something. That, you know, there's nothing like that now, but it's like, no, there's freaking Harry Potter, and there's all kinds of incredible stuff. So you just got to ask yourself why you're That's being right. like that um, and, and come around. Yeah, it's, I'm, a, I'm nostalgic for the 80s. I'm nostalgic for the 80s, too, but I don't, I mean, I, I forgot. Yeah, I don't want to forget that you go wait in line for, for – 40 minutes to ca- cash a paycheck, you know, at the bank, yeah. or, you know, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I remember when they came mm-hmm. out with the ATMs, I thought that's interesting. I wonder if that'll catch on, you know, and it's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is, yeah, that's, yeah. That's so interesting now it's just, now you just take a picture with your phone because it has a camera absolutely uh, of your check and then you go about your day. I know it's crazy. But nonetheless, um, you you're stacked up right behind you. You've got Marshall 800, API know, gear. You've got gear enough. made in the 70s and 80s all behind you there. So how does that jive? Yep. Uh, it doesn't take any longer to record a real amp than it does to record an amp sim. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm still using this stuff. I think it sounds incredible. Um, it's it's awesome. I got a I've got this Friedman, which is pretty new, mm-hmm. and that thing is is a really cool take on a modern take on old amps. Um, just a lot of, I don't know, man. Amps are fun. I got do, more amps than the other. Do you use simulations as well? Uh, just for just when we're like writing or like messing around with stuff, but not not for actually recording. Mm-hmm. The uh, I think I saw behind you. If you'll move a second again, my favorite piece of gear that I see behind you is that uh, Line Six, the Echo Park rack thing. They don't make that happen in a long time. <laughs> that thing's unbelievable. I love that piece. Yeah, that that thing's pretty cool, man. Um, you know, I, I'll get real nerdy for a second. Uh, for years, there was this Pro Tools plugin called EchoFar. Yes, I know. I love it. Absolutely. Just, dude, that plugin is awesome. And Unbelievable. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Yes, I have HDX now, and it doesn't work. Absolutely. My so I bought that Line 6 one. because now I have to use analog gear to replicate my digital gear. It's not even analog. I mean, it's digital, but it's out of the box. Right. There's a, that's a weird thing. That is a super weird thing. I had to something analog I'm in order to way. replicate my outdated digital. Yeah, I, I learned to use that actually first, which was still an, a, an emulator thing. All of Line 6, but it was all yeah. physical. And yeah, then yeah, they yeah. made the Echo Farm, and I thought that was the greatest the single greatest emulation and effects plugin yeah. I ever had. And then now that's discontinued yeah. and not kept up with anywhere. So very, very frustrating. Who so you have to go back rights? to an analog Who owns emulation. The rights? I'll buy it. I want that plugin. I'll, I'll bring it back. I'll make it AAX or something. It's, <laughs> Absolutely. It's so when it went to AAX, we lost the, the echo farm. I, I'm the exact same yeah. way. Uh, Chris, I've enjoyed talking to you very much and uh, this has been a great episode. So thank you for your time. What's the next thing you got coming up? Um, I, can't talk about it. Okay. Well, we'll hear about it when it comes answer, out. But, uh, yeah, man, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it once it happens. What is, is there anything you but want people cool. to, to do or know or follow you? Do you like people follow you on Twitter? Just check out your, your, your website. Yeah, Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Instagram is uh, K Crummet. It's K-C-R-U-M-M-E-T-T. And uh, most of what I do, I update on there. Um, all my other social media is linked. Well, absolutely. Thank you for your time tonight. Your studio is called Interlace Audio, and it's interlaceaudio.com. It is, yeah. So you can, people can find you there. Check out the stuff you've done. Yeah. I think people really enjoy this episode, and thank you very much. I'm going to leave I'm gonna leave you right here. Sounds good, man. Great talking. Appreciate Take it. Take it easy. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. 
I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks With Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.